awesome to be with y'all this this Shabbat night, and um, I'm excited because we're going to be in a new place tonight. We are going to be studying in a new book, the book of Ecclesiastes. So the Lord has given a word and a direction for us, and um, what an awesome place when the Lord gives a direction. So if you would turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're in the church's Bible, it will be on page 763. It's a little tricky to find, but if you find Psalms and then go to Proverbs, it is just after Proverbs. So last Sunday, the Lord gave an opening scripture that was from Ecclesiastes. You may remember it was a scripture that in a nutshell said that when we come into the Lord's house, that we are to be slow to speak and quick to listen. That we are be to be slow to have our own thoughts and perspectives, but quick to listen. And what seems so simple is really a revolutionary thought. Because even now, we come into the Lord's house, we escape the things of the world, we aim to forget our weak and the things that have been following us and chasing us, yet they are seeking for control of our mind and control of our spirit and to infiltrate how we hear from God's word. And so I pray that that would be us tonight, that we would be slow to speak, excuse me, yeah, slow to speak and quick to listen. It's almost hard to get that order right. Um, so I am really excited for what the Lord has in store for us in Ecclesiastes. Um, I've, got, I've got one slide that Roger's going to put up here, and it's going to have a lot of information, so I encourage you to, to, not, to not read too much of what's down here, but we're going to begin with, uh, with what is up at the top, because it's really important to understand what it is that we're reading. And sometimes that's really difficult. You know, we open our Bible and we begin to read one passage as if it's the same as another. We read what's going on in the Gospels the same as what we'd read in Genesis. And while it's all God's Word, God's Word was given to different audiences. It was given with different meaning. And even as we read it, we must be inspired by the Holy Spirit. So you may have heard of the Old Testament described as this word, Tanakh. And this word Tanakh really has three consonants in it, a T, an N, and a K. And well, actually it has another consonant that's a CH sound, but, but it has these three consonants that stand for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. And so Torah is what we know is the law of the first five books of the Bible, instruction or law. And Nebi'im, or Nebi'im, are the prophets. And so we studied in Amos, and Amos is one of the prophets. There's also other books from the prophets like Samuel that, that we don't necessarily think of in the same vein as Amos or Isaiah. And the last section is the Ketuvim. And those are the writings. And so Psalms and Proverbs, Job, Ruth, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Chronicles, these are all books of writings. And, and really this relates kind of to how they're written. Uh, it, it relates to um, 
how they're written differently than the books of the law, which are instruction, or the books of the prophets, which are prophecy, but they are filled with religious poetry. And when I say religious, I mean the only religion that there is, Yahweh's religion, and written in a poetic formula. And also, they are wisdom literature, which means as we read them, we're to understand that we're being given something to give us understanding that we wouldn't otherwise have. And so that's what this book, Ecclesiastes, is a part of. It is poetry and it is wisdom. Among the Ketuvim is a special group of five books that is called the Megaloth, or the Five Scrolls. And these books were read on various feasts annually. So when the Jewish people would gather, they would read from certain books of the Bible. And so Ecclesiastes was read on the Sabbaths of Sukkot. So when they gathered together to celebrate how God made them dwell in booths in the wilderness, and they reminded what God had done for them, they would read from these words. And I think as we study these words, it will make sense why they would read at such an appointed time as remembering how God made them dwell in booths, how God made them wander in the wilderness to realize who he was. So let's read just the first verse in Ecclesiastes. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the title of the book that we read probably says on the top of our page, Ecclesiastes. But in, in, in our Bibles, most of the, the titles of our books come from a Greek version of what New Testament readers would have been reading. So Ecclesiastes is actually a version of a Greek word, but always in the Hebrew Bible, the name comes from the first verse. So it says the words of the preacher. So the word in Hebrew that we read here is koheleth, and that means probably nothing to us, but this word would be translated preacher. Now, when we think of preacher, we think of somebody standing behind a podium, maybe reading from scripture, somebody praying, somebody saying some good spiritual things, but that's really the complete wrong idea of a preacher. So, this word here, preacher, in the Old Testament, is, is a word that means the speaker to the called out ones. So we read again and again in the Old Testament about the, the, the congregation, the assembly, which actually Deborah would say is one, is a body of people that have been called out. Some think it just means a group of people that are being called out too. So whether we are those who are called out from among, or we are being called out too, that's what a preacher is meant to do. It is to speak to those people. It isn't just to say good things, things that sound good, things that are motivational or encouraging. It is one who speaks to those who are called out. And that is critical for us to understand what the author of this book would say. It says, the words of the one 
who is speaking to those who are called out. It says the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So in the New Testament, Jesus and the disciples would have likely read from what we've talked about, this this translation called the Septuagint. And so it would have been a Greek translation of the first half of God's whole word. They would have been reading in Greek, most of them, from the Old Testament. And so the word they would have read in Greek for this idea of the preacher is Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a New Testament word we know. You may have heard of um, ecclesia, which is where we understand the word church. And so the preacher is the one speaking to the church, speaking to those who have been called out. When we just say church, we just assume it's a place like this. We're doing the same thing where there's a preacher, there's a Bible, there's some scripture, there's some things on the wall, and that's a church. But that's not what the church is to even our Lord and Savior. It is the place for those who have been called out. It is the same in Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, and it is the same in the New Testament. And that is so significant because as we're going to begin to study, the author of Ecclesiastes is speaking to both those then and those who would come to follow Jesus as Messiah. Those who would be called out. So, I've been, I've been saying the author because I've been leading up to who the author is. And the author of Ecclesiastes is, as we read in verse 1, it says, The son of David, king in Jerusalem. So, although this book is anonymous... It is, I believe, absolutely written by Solomon, King Solomon, son of David. In and of itself, the fact that it is anonymous says something about the nature for which this was written. See, Solomon, as we know and as we'll study, is this great king, this one who was given all wisdom, all knowledge, the greatest kingdom in Israel, but he writes this book anonymously. Most believe that, that, that Solomon wrote three books at a minimum. He wrote the Song of Solomon, which he likely wrote when he was a young man. He wrote the Proverbs, which he wrote when he was middle-aged. And he writes this book, Ecclesiastes, as an old man. Think about the picture among those three books that would be written as a young man and a middle-aged man and an old man. And if we think about our lives and where we were as young people or middle-aged people or even now, or we, we hope to think that from those periods of time that we have matured in the Lord or matured as people, I believe that's what we're to read from Solomon. That even in all the wisdom in the Proverbs that we read, all these, these, these great parables and these great scriptures that lead us to truth and reality, that is just the middle point of where Solomon ultimately ends up. That towards the end of his life, as, as I believe we'll talk about in a minute, that God changes his life and as a result, he will write us these words as a warning. More important than the author is, the, is that the book cites who 
its wisdom is from. So turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We'll read in verse 10. I'll say that in all of Ecclesiastes, the Lord's name is not mentioned. Like the book of Esther, it is not mentioned who who Solomon is talking about. But we get to the very end of the book and we're told. So we'll read in chapter chapter 12, uh, verses 10 and 11. Solomon says, The preacher, so that's him, he's the author, sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. So I know that doesn't seem grandiose, but Solomon's going to write this entire book for us, and he's going to come to the end, and he's going to tell us all the wisdom that he has comes from this one source, one shepherd. Shepherd's It is capitalized because it is a prophetic place talking about Jesus who would come as the good shepherd, and this one God is the one who gives all wisdom and all truth. And so the pinnacle of Solomon's message is to say that this is where wisdom comes from. He gave all these great things back in the Proverbs, but that was nothing compared to what he's offering that he's learned from this shepherd. If you're interested in in what is going on in the times of Solomon, I encourage you to read in 1 Kings. You can read chapters 2 through 11, and it really, from start to finish, chronicles his whole life. You can read a little bit in in, in Chronicles, but but in 1 Kings 2 through 11, it really, really gives us an understanding of who Solomon was. And sometimes it's easy to, to remember a king like Solomon and think of him only for what, he, for, for what he achieved. He built the temple. He was the wisest of the land. He went before the queen of Sheba. He wrote books like Proverbs and Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. But we should be reminded of who this man truly was. He was a man who the Lord gave everything his heart could desire. And he turned from those things. The Lord gave him instructions about how to honor him, and he turned from those things. So if you'd like to read, you can read in 1 Kings 2 through 11. So initially, um, like we've talked, um, Israel uh, came together as a united kingdom under King Saul. So Saul had all the 12 tribes, all the land of those 12 tribes of Judah and of Israel together. And David kept those kingdoms together. And then um, after Saul, those kingdoms would be divided. Saul was the catalyst for this division. So even though the Lord worked in, I said Saul, I'm sorry, Solomon. Even though the Lord worked in Solomon's life, And Solomon, I believe, would ultimately turn back to the Lord at the end of his life. There were consequences for his sin, and the kingdom was divided from him. It was torn from his descendants. But I want to point out, um, Roger, if you dim these lights, you you can see this map. It was about the best map I could find to really illustrate this point. So what you'll see here in the red, this is Israel in the time of David. 
So the Lord is consolidating authority and power and David and building great relationships. And David is friends with kings of nations around him and his kingdom is growing. And this is it in the red. Jerusalem somewhere right here. And the very northern part is up, up here. Uh, the kingdom began to move over into Moab and, in, and Edom and it would grow. Then as, as Solomon inherited this kingdom, it grew two and a half times what it was. The pinnacle of the kingdom was under Solomon's reign. And I show this to show all that Solomon had under his authority and all that was given to him. Solomon was king over this united kingdom for 40 years. 40 years. And after this, it would be divided and torn and entered into chaos and ultimately things would go from bad to worse and we know the story we know that that Israel would go into captivity and that Judah would later go into captivity so that's a little bit about what's going on um, in Solomon's life so to start I'll say that this book is unique and if you've ever read much of it you know that it's it's puzzling it's a little bizarre it's really unlike any other book in the bible it has this great poetical way of presenting information and some really neat literary devices but it's pretty grim it's pessimistic and even hopeless this book has no praise it has no peace, but it's honest. It's, it's not the, the best dressed Sunday attitude. Instead, it's a vulnerable and honest reflection. This book has lots of opposites. Wisdom versus folly. Folly seems to be one of Solomon's favorite words. It's an honest way of saying an absence of understanding. Solomon presents good and evil. Light versus dark. Love versus hate. Life versus death. And this world versus eternity. So he puts things really plainly for us that I think we make complex and muddy and unclear. He says it is either this or it is that. Ecclesiastes is kind of like Job. If you've read Job, you know you can't take any one passage in Job out of context. You have to understand the whole story through the whole story. It's kind of like all of God's word. We can, we can be drawn to a scripture and the Lord can highlight it and give understanding and meaning. But if we take a scripture out of the context of God's holiness, God's love... God's mercy, but God's righteousness, then we miss out who God is. And likewise, if we take a passage out of Ecclesiastes, out of the understanding of the whole story, then we miss Solomon's point. So, obviously, we're not going to read all 12 chapters tonight. Um, we're going to take this in some bite-sized chunks, but it's going to be important that we understand his end point from the very beginning. So a little more, there is a sarcastic tone 
to this book. To looking at life without God. At a life without an eternal perspective. It's really kind of interesting, right? That, that looking at a life without God, looking at a life without an eternal perspective, would make somebody, a preacher, sarcastic. I think we've grown too comfortable with this reality of hell and of sin, of judgment, and of being outside of God's will. But Solomon is more comfortable with being sarcastic and realizing this life without God. Do you see the difference between those two things? He is comfortable acknowledging the fate of those who are not in God's purpose. He is uncomfortable with sending these mixed messages. So there's a phrase that we're going to get used to reading. It is this, this phrase, under the sun. Under the S-U-N. There's even movies about being under the sun. There are books written with things like this. And this phrase that, that Solomon uses refers to a life without God. And understanding that the earthly physical things are futile. Solomon is going to use this phrase 31 times. 31 times he's going to basically remind us again and again and again that a life without the king of kings, the king of glory, is useless. Interestingly enough, under the sun is how Solomon spent most of his life. The majority of this man's life, who wrote three plus books in our Old Testament, was spent under the sun. In futility, and vanity, and arrogance, and pride, out of the circle of righteousness, and peace, and fellowship with the Most High God. Solomon spent most of his life doing what he wanted to do. So... His perspective is at this unique crossroads where he's almost glad to know that life is useful. Life is useless. And at the same time, he's a little frustrated. I wonder if we realize that life is useless. That life means nothing without God. And at the same time, would we acknowledge that we're a little frustrated by that reality? Solomon was frustrated because he came to the realization that life without God is unjust. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm stating his position. Think about this. Evil exists. The good suffer. The evil succeed. And for most of life, things are out of man's control. Does that seem fair? See, Solomon is trying to realize these two very different things. I think there are those that either 
they position themselves over here that life is simply not fair, that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people and they're frustrated. And then there are those that have accepted that Jesus is their Savior and they want the good things of the Lord, but they refuse to accept that they still hold some of those truths over there. They bring them over here and they're frustrated when things don't work out the right way, when they can't understand what God's doing, because they haven't dealt with this over here. But they want the good things of the Lord. And what changed Solomon's life is realizing this. Realizing that he had to be delivered from this perspective of of fairness and justice according to Solomon the Great, the Wise. And coming over here to the Lord's camp where he is delivered of this perspective to be justified by the Most High God. As a result, Solomon will reflect on where he ended up. And where he ended up was to eat, to drink, and to be merry. So a a few things that that the preacher, that Solomon is going to focus on as themes. He recognizes that there is a fall, that there is a fall in the Garden of Eden, and he is painfully aware that sin has destroyed everything. This is an important thing because I think that the good news that that Solomon is trying to get to doesn't really mean anything if he doesn't recognize that sin is destroying everything. That sin has destroyed everything in his path. Another theme is vanity. And this isn't really vanity like we think of looking in a mirror and being really obsessed with our image vanity. This is, this is a key word in this book that describes both physical things and inward thoughts and feelings. It is a word that means empty and passing. This word is so important to Solomon that he uses it 38 times in Ecclesiastes. So 38 times he is going to describe the things that are empty, that are fleeting, that are vapid. Another thing that is important for Solomon is sin and death. He is very direct in explaining that by sinning, we forfeit the righteousness that God originally intended. Work is really important to Solomon. He is really concerned might be the good might be a good word. He's concerned with both the joy and the frustrations of labor and toil. He talks about how Adam and Eve sinned and as a result the that creation was cursed and that now man has to work. And he's really concerned with all this work that we do and how we can be so satisfied and so empty at the same time. Finally, he is very concerned with the fear of God. Woven throughout all of his thoughts, Solomon explains how this vanity should drive us to fearing the Lord and taking refuge in him. 
Now, the reason I point out all of these themes is because though this is a, a unique book, Solomon's not off his rocker. He's not just rambling about his own thoughts and understandings. The Lord is bringing him to some great knowledge. And these are ingredients that we see throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, that are critical to understanding salvation. And I believe that Solomon was understanding them. Okay, so in a nutshell, um, well, let's, let's go to 1 Kings 11. So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11 in the church's Bible on page 401. Okay, we're going to read a few verses that, that are really towards the very end of Solomon's life and are going to kind of tell us how he ends up where he ends up. Okay, so let's read verses 9 through 13. It reads, So the Lord became angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days, for the sake of your father David, I will tear it out from the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it away from the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David. And after, excuse me, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. I meant to, I meant to read a little bit more. Let, let's read just in, in verse 1, I'm sorry. It says, but King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites, the nations of whom the Lord had said to Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives had turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was his, the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place on Chemoth, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Sorry, I read, we, we read all of this out of order. But the point is to all of this that, that the Lord comes to Solomon and he tells him, um, I've remind, I'm reminding you that I told you in all that I told you, 
not to marry women of other nations, for they will take you away to worship their gods. Not only did he tell him what not to do, he gave him an explicit reason of what would happen. So what does Solomon do? And all of the wisdom that the Lord had given him. Now hear that. This is a man who the Lord has given all of the wisdom that he could possibly have. We can have everything the Lord wants us to have. The Lord can show us in his word. We can know it from cover to cover. And we can choose to refuse him and to follow our own ways. And that's what Solomon had done. He'd gone after all these women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, a thousand women. Imagine the darkness of entering into these relationships with these women that were not of God, and then he followed them into their gods and set them up as the gods of Israel. Now let's turn to, to understand what, what, what his response was. Let's read in, back in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 on page 770. So in chapter 7, we'll read just a few verses, beginning in verse 25. Solomon says, I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom, and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her. But the... Sh the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here is what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man in a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now what this is saying is that he has sought out these women that he realizes that these women that he should not have gone into were snares and traps, and that by aligning with them, by aligning with the things which God forbade him from and warned him from, he has entered into relationship with the enemy, and the enemy has pulled him away from the things of God. In verse 29, he concludes to say, This only have I found. In all of my study, I have realized that God made man upright. God established Adam and Eve in the garden to be without sin, to be in relationship with him. But what has man done? They have sought out many schemes. These things have not merely happened to us. We have sought them out. We may be born into sin, and that's true, and that's a thing Solomon teaches us in Ecclesiastes. We know that to be the case. We were not made in the image of God. We were made in the image of Adam. Adam was made in the image of God. But we were made in Adam's image, in the image of a sinful man. 
That's why we need a Savior, to redeem us from this. But we, as part of this sinful mankind, are seeking out schemes. We're seeking these traps out. That's what Solomon's great understanding is at the end of his life. It came because God came to him and gave him this word and said, Why are you doing what I've called you not to do? In a nutshell, Solomon writes this book at the end of his life after a life spent seeking all the pleasures and successes of this world, the Lord gets his attention. He repents and he recognizes his foolishness. I believe that the Lord gave him clarity to see the vanity, the selfishness, the pride of life's pursuits. Oh, what great understanding that would be. If we could see the spiritual reality of this world, that it is vanity, that it is useless, that it is vapid, that it is without meaning. We tell our kids this. We tell others this, right? We're like, yeah, well, we know, you know, I mean, none of this means anything. Well, then I'm going to go on and pretend it means everything. Solomon realizes that the things like these are temporary and do not satisfy the spirit. He's warning us. He's warning us who are believers, who have been lured away by the things of the flesh that Paul talks about, like, I, like a, adultery and fornication and uncleanness and lewdness and a, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, and revelries. This is Solomon's life. Paul warns us against these same things. And Solomon says, I believe to those who are not believers, who don't know the Lord Jesus, who don't know his father Yahweh, he says, life is at best vanity without a savior. It's at best meaningless. And at worst, it's even worse. So the question in this book isn't whether God exists, because God's name isn't mentioned. It's not whether God exists, it's whether God matters. We, we live in a culture, even in this town and in a state, in a country, that doesn't really deny generally that God exists, but it denies that God matters. Okay, so I want to give us a little bit of an outline for what this book is because I think it's important to just kind of imagine some of the things that are going to, are, are going to be addressed. And it's really kind of hard because although this book is, is poetic and uses cool language, it's not written like a, a legal document like Paul writes in some of his New Testament letters. It's not written chronologically like a gospel. It's written like a, a journal, a diary. It's written like the things that we, we realize, but that we don't want anybody else to know we realize. The things that we realize, but that we kind of pack deep down, because if we acknowledge them, if we allow them to change us, they would have to change us. So 
will in the next weeks kind of unpack some of these a little bit more, but but we're we're going to read in a minute and and there's a title verse that we've read in verse 1 and then there's initial a poem an initial poem that we'll read tonight. And then he's going to focus a lot of his time investigating life. I mean, that's as good of any to thing to investigate, right? That's what everyone wants to know. What's the meaning of life? Instead of who is the meaning of life? He's going to investigate life, and then he's going to tell us what he concludes. He's going to go on this, this expedition, and he's going to give us his conclusions. And then he's going to kind of wrap it up with a first closing and a concluding poem. And then he is going to try and send us off armed to realize the decision that we've either already made or have yet to make. I plan for us to, to read a little bit tonight, but I, I think we've, we've gotten a lot to chew on. So, the first message that, that Solomon gives in chapter 1, he, he builds on this idea that he says, everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless. Everything is, is futile and everything means nothing. He says in several different ways that everything is the same. Despite all of man's progress, everything is monotonous. There are cycles and progressions, but ultimately, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Here comes the new boss, same as the old boss. And think about that spiritually. We are in one spiritual dimension or another. And either we are in relationship with the enemy in the spiritual realm, and the more things change, the more they stay exactly the same. The new boss, we think, is really the same as the old. Or we are in covenant with the Most High God, and things stay the same, right? We are not taken out of relationship with the Most High God, but that stays the same. And that new boss... He keeps becoming new and new and new and we understand him differently, but he is the same as the old boss. His covenants have been refreshed, but he is the same boss. He is the same God. His word has not changed. His purpose has not changed. So is Solomon right about this, that life is futile? That life is meaningless or nothing. How we think about that really should be spiritually revealing to us. I think that absolutely he's right. Life is meaningless. Look around you. Look around you in this room. Look around you when you go to work. Look, at, look around you when you watch things on TV. Is there any meaning or substance to what we are doing? Solomon strengthens this point, and we'll read this verse next week, but he says, vanity of vanities, like holy of holies, a superlative. He says it is the, the most meaningless of the most meaningless. That's what this life is. 
Think about this. Solomon has had all the lustful pleasure one can have. 700 wives, 300 concubines. In 2 Chronicles 2.9, we're told that he was given 25 tons of gold annually. I did some digging on this, and scholars estimate his wealth would have been $2 trillion. That's 10 times Jeff Bezos' wealth. So this man has had everything, and he says it's nothing. I imagine him shaking us like we would our kids before they go off to college, before they go into war, before they they go into the real world and say, please grab a hold of these few things I'm going to tell you. He says none of this means anything except for knowing God. It's what Paul tries to convince us of in the New Testament. All's rubbish except for knowing the Lord. I believe that many refuse to acknowledge what Solomon is saying and therefore settle for far too shallow a relationship with our great God. Recognizing this, what Solomon is saying has implications because either we remain there, we remain over here in our despair and our bondage goes from realized to chosen, or we recognize we need a Savior to each and every day rescue us and deliver us. If we're rescued and delivered, it is not just geographically from sin and vanity. We are rescued mentally to see and perceive the depth of this vanity. How ridiculous the things of the world are. But more importantly, we are rescued and relocated spiritually and dimensionally into the things of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. You see, Solomon complained that there wasn't anything new under the sun, under the S-U-N. But Jesus came to tell us that there are new things under the sun, under the S-O-N. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Hebrews 10, the writer says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holy of holies, excuse me, the holiest, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. In the last scripture I'll read in Ephesians 4, Paul says that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. See, what what I want us to hear from, from Solomon is that Solomon was still living in this old covenant and bless him that the Lord was working through this system that he provided. We are heirs to Jesus' sacrifice. We are no longer to be in these old ways of ourselves. I think that many in the church are trapped back here, self-inflicted traps that they have to remain in their old ways. And Jesus says, no, I have established a new life for you in all ways. 
Not doing away with the old covenant, but a fresh new covenant. The covenant that sent the Spirit to change and correct and make new all things. As we go through Ecclesiastes, we're not going to be going verse by verse, so I hope that you'll read. It's going to require some, some reading. And I pray that, you'll serve, that you will prayerfully seek the Lord. I pray that you will ask Him if there's anything that hasn't been made new by the Son. The Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. And that together as a congregation that we would be called out as an audience from Ecclesiastes. That we would listen to this speaker and be called out for the Lord's purpose.